everyone and welcome to this episode of the Soul Brew Podcast with me, Aidan, and my co-host Stephen. This is a podcast that we hadn't hoped to be doing, um, but we've done it anyway. Uh, the podcast is called The Homes of Donegal. Stephen, can you explain to the listeners why we're calling it The Homes of Donegal? So we are recording this two weeks after the explosion that took place in Chrysler. We are two Chrysler men and we have named it the homes of Donegal after probably the most famous person from Chrysler, uh, Brady Gallagher, one of her famous songs. Um, and I think the homes of Donegal have united in the past two weeks um, in a way we never thought we would have to. Um, and unfortunately, with what happened, um, the community has nearly gotten stronger, I feel, um, Chrysla as a community and, and all the people within it. Um, this is not going to be the most exciting episode. There's not going to be that much crack in it. Um, it's a very hard thing for us to do and how to do it in a way that's respectful of everyone that's been affected by it. And we have a guest on today who I'll introduce in a few minutes. Uh, but before I do, Aidan, how are you? Uh, I'm not so bad. Um, and I'm just sitting here looking at some of the lyrics of, of this song. And we're not talking about coffee today. Um, we're just talking about a good warm cup of tea that's someone just might need at the moment and even the lyrics of that song is um i want to hear how you're getting on which we think is a very important question people should be or could be asking each other and asking themselves and the other lyrics are the kettle boiling on the hearth as i walk up the floor and we just think at this present moment in time that a warm cup of tea and asking someone how they're getting on might seem like a little insignificant gesture to do but it could be the most powerful thing you might you might be able to do in that day um Stephen and myself were on the scene of that tragedy on the 7th um and so we feel that we should talk about it and encourage others to talk about it um and the purpose of this podcast to have um Dr. Michelle Murphy on was to encourage others to talk about it as well. Yeah. And even on that, I've had the week after what happened, I had more tea with Bridget Doak than I normally do. What uh, I would what I would do for a cup of tea with Bridget Doak right now. <laughs> and a wee scone bun. Uh, there's scones galore. Um and it's it's the small things like that that helped me in the last week or two and will continue to do so. And before we introduce Michelle and who she is, um, I think it's really important that we just reiterate the 10 people that sadly aren't with us anymore, um, who they are and and what they mean to people from Chrysler. So firstly... I think we'll just mention the names yeah, of the people and show that uh, bit of respect towards them um, because we might refer to people 
uh, or the 10 people that passed away, and they are Catherine O'Donnell, who's 39 years old, and her son, James Monaghan, who's 13. Uh, Martin McGill, who is 49 years old. And Jessica Galler, who is 24. James O'Flaherty, who is 48 years old. Martina Martin, who is 49. Hugh Kelly, who is 59 years old. And then Robert Garwe, who is 50 years old, and his daughter, Shauna Flanagan Garwe, who is five years old. And Leona Harper, who is 14 years old. Our thoughts are with all their family, friends, anyone that is affected by this from Chrysler, from outside of Chrysler, people from Chrysler that aren't living there anymore. And um, I definitely think as a unit, as a community, um, being there for each other is helpful. Yeah. Um, and there's not, there's not a lot that, that we can say. Stephen, would you like to introduce our guest speaker today? Yes. So our guest speaker is in the board of directors for HelpLink Mental Health Services. She was also a counsellor for them for six years. Her name is Dr. Michelle Murphy. She is a doctor of psychotherapy, uh, where she specialised in neurological rehab, which basically means the supporting of people who have gone through traumatic events and providing strategies to, to support their well-being and their day-to-day functioning. She is now a senior lecturer in the Irish Institute of Counseling and Psychotherapy and also owns her own private practice and is a clinical supervisor. Uh, thank you to HelpLink and Sam for setting us up with Michelle. And if anyone gets anything from this or you think someone might get uh, meaning from this conversation, please do share it with them. And as we said, it's not the best crack of episodes but we feel it's really important so i hope you get something from it and enjoy michelle murphy dr michelle murphy welcome to our podcast how are you thank you very much for having me i am really well on this friday afternoon um weather has cleared up thankfully over the last kind of couple of hours so that's always a good sign to get some daylight in to help mm-hmm. with our, our well-being but i suppose in terms of having me on and thank you very much for inviting me on how are both of you over the last couple of weeks um well i'll take this one first so we are recording this on the 21st of october which is two weeks after what happened in Chrysler. um i am feeling okay right now uh last week if you had asked me this question this time last week would have been a different answer um, I think time is helping and uh, working on things myself is helping um, still feel strange um, it's still a strange place to live in Chrysler at the moment um, and I know Aidan living outside of Chrysler you might feel strange in a different way do you? Yeah so I would say I am feeling also okay um, I'm a very mixed bag after the events that happened in Greece two weeks ago it was Friday the 7th I actually had to leave on Saturday morning first thing um, because I was coming to Austria for the winter time 
Um, so in a strange way, I feel quite removed from everything that has happened, even though I was there when it when it after it happened. Stephen and I were both there. Um, so I go through waves of guilt at the moment um, mm-hmm. of not being at home, even though um, and I know in myself that I'd done as much as I possibly could have done. So yeah, it's a bit of a it's been a bit of a roller coaster, and also when I've been over while I'm here, I'm trying to set up a new life here for the one to months, and I'm trying to get lay foundations to to build upon. So it's been a strange way to to leave the country, I suppose. Um, but I, I'm I'm not sure how things are on the ground. So that's why probably Stephen is better at answering those sort of questions, and maybe mm. I'm better talking about. Uh, people who aren't at home at the at the moment, but maybe want to be at home at the moment. Um, Michelle, on on that on that topic of, I I don't know how you would describe this, but like, are the people of Crisa going through what would be like a collective trauma or a collective um tragedy, or how would you articulate what is happening, um, on such a scale? I think I think it's a great question, and I I wonder if if we can do it justice talking about people's unique and I suppose experience to something so unexpected and so traumatic. But usually, when you know a collective of people experience something, it, it is kind of coined as a collective grief. Um, and I suppose really what that means is that there's a I suppose there's a nuance to it in terms of it being collective grief that there's a shared experience of, you know, I, I suppose a direct impact into something that's happened in terms of, you know, being on the scene, trying to create, you know, having the, the coffee shop open and trying to serve teas and coffees to trying to help family members, you know, navigate through the day to day over the next couple of days to trying to figure out where I sit with all of those feelings, as well as potentially being triggered, you know, in terms of past traumas or past losses that we've all experienced can come up. So in, in the notion of collective grief, we share in the trauma that's happened. And really what, what comes out of that is that we all experience the same types of losses in terms of a loss of norm, normal life, whatever that looks like for people, or a loss of a, a normal community or a normal functioning community, however Creaselow would have functioned prior to Friday the 7th. And I think particularly at the minute, there, there might be an increased loss of a sense of safety because of this being so unexpected, so interrupted, so unknown. We still need to know more about how this happened, why this happened, and you know, try and repair this sense of safety that's now been broken and kind of almost fractured. And I suppose with that, then we also see people when they experience this type of collective grief or even on an individual level, this kind of loss of the psychological well-being. We're emotionally, physically, interpersonally impacted. And that then has a direct impact on how we function in a day-to-day and how we function in group settings. And then quite often we see an impaired social connection. And when we look at these impaired social connections, we talk about these 10 people who have lost their lives, who've all been directly impacted on other people. We've all had, or you've all had relationships with these people. And now there's a loss to that. So there's a huge amount of loss that collectively all of the increase will be experiencing at the moment. Yeah, I think 
I think it's a tough thing to put into words. Even the last couple of weeks living here, I mean, normality, whether things will ever get back to normal, inverted commas, is one thing. But especially the last couple of weeks, even the road is still closed. Um, and Chrysler's shop was extremely busy. It yeah. was like, uh, and like, I know there's often reports about it being a hub of the community and all that sort of stuff, but it really was. And not having that is strange. And I think that's actually going to be another barrier whenever the road does open and people are driving past often, but yeah. might get to that in a second. But one thing you're sort of seeing there is that, you know, people are almost that bit scared and stuff. I know speaking to a few people that said, you know, they heard uh, a door bang or something in the house and it gave them a fright that they would never have had before. And, you know, even I know from walking into another shop in the last week, I was almost not scared to go into the shop, but it was like a, an apprehension that I've never experienced before. And, and I suppose that's something that a lot of us might be feeling, maybe increase that and outside of Crisa, with the fact that it's been such a, a tragic thing to happen in such a, a small um, area and such a, you know, a normal shop to go to. Um, how do you think um, people can deal with that sort of trauma from that and, and moving forward? I think when it comes to coping on an individual or a collective way when it comes to managing grief, I think it's important to recognise that there are ebbs and flows with grief. It's a very unique experience. Although we have a shared experience of what grief does to, we'll say, a community in terms of we'll say, the functioning of it, but how we all manage it becomes very individual. And I, I see grief as kind of like, I suppose, a biopsychosocial process. So when we look at, you know, medicine and healthcare, we've kind of moved into, we're no longer treating symptoms. We're trying to treat the whole person from a biopsychosocial perspective. And I think with grief, it's quite the same. We need to look at, look inward before we can look outward to see how are we functioning on a biopsychosocial level with grief, because we can get impacted quite physically. But grief, as you've mentioned there, this apprehension or this potential fear or the sense of almost being raw walking into a shop and almost being triggered when we haven't felt that before and all of a sudden our brain goes into a threat mode and we start maybe sweating or we start noticing our heart rate increase we start noticing maybe problems with our gut we notice maybe a, an impact on our immune system so it can be a lot of physical symptoms when we're grieving and that has a knock-on effect in terms of cognitively then how our brain works so we hear about the grieving brain where we have all of these neurons that make connections within the brain that send messages to be able to pick up a pen, for example, or pick up a coffee cup. And quite often when we are close to someone, we have these neural connections that get stronger the more we build a bond with someone. So when someone passes away, our brain is still looking to share those neuron connections with the other person. So it's still finding those messages and it's it starts getting interrupted when someone passes away because those messages no longer are there. We're trying to find different ways to make the brain work. So quite often we can experience what's called cognitive fatigue. We can be really sluggish with our thinking. We can, we can find it difficult to make decisions. We can find it really difficult to pay attention or focus or concentrate. And then you also have the emotional difficulties where, you know, you could be experiencing a whole range of emotions and varying intensities ranging from anger to disbelief to numb to being shocked to fear to guilt and then that has knock-on effects in terms of social and behavioral how we manage them in social environments whether we withdraw or whether we try and 
you know, really lean into people or look at how do we cope at home um, in terms of our behaviours. So I think before we even look at how do we manage that as a community, we need to look at how do we manage all of those bits individually. And I think by trying to look at it biopsychosocially, we can kind of look at managing it then in terms of if I notice some physical symptoms, I can target that today. If I notice it's my cognitive thinking, for example, I can look at targeting that and it helps build us back up piece by piece, very slowly and very gently. And then I think as a community, I suppose from the from a research perspective, when we look at trauma, kind of on national and international scales, what they talk about is this kind of notion of, I suppose, a positive effect. So moving into this kind of our, our public effect, I should say, my apologies, this notion of shared mourning, which you've all experienced, where we had a succession of funerals across a number of days, which is incredibly moving to be a part of, but also being incredibly exhausting. So quite often, so we're trying to maybe take a step back out and look after ourselves, and check back in with how we're feeling. And then quite often, it's also about these community actions that we can create, like the vigils in Letterkenny, for example, and being able to have a place where we can come together to be able to share in those grief and share in those moments of the ebbs and flows and share experiences of the 10 people who have passed away. Um, <clears throat> something that you had said there struck a bit of a chord with me, and that was the word numbness. Um, and I know my own experience for that first week because I had to leave the next day and I had so many things to organize and moving <clears> that I didn't really feel much that week, to be honest, and I just did. And <clears throat> as we were kind of discussing before we come on the phone call, there was men and women at that event, but there was particularly more men, um, which we would be worried about that, that wouldn't maybe tackle this so head on um, and in that ebb and flow of all those mixed emotions I stayed numb for about a week before I even kind of talked about it with anyone yeah. is there on an individual level you know is, is there an amount of t like is numbness um, first of all probably is it like a, a response like a, a protection response and like how long should people spend in certain modes of this ebb and flow and how do you know that you're actually beginning to process the grief well i think grief is a learning process so we're not built to know how to manage it we have to learn how to weave our way through it or how do or learn how to integrate the grief with our lives um because you know again from our all of our experience of grief the grief never really goes away but we learn how to make it a part of our lives and again the ebbs and flows they usually lessen over time and there is no i suppose time limit but i suppose over the last year what we've seen in terms of supporting people who are grieving long term is that there is now a, I suppose, a clinical or a medical definition of prolonged grief. And what that says is that for an adult who has lost someone, let's say 12 months ago, if they're experiencing three or more symptoms every day for a month after that, so maybe in the 13th month of things like disrupted appetite, a sense of life being really meaningless um, or vacant or empty, looking at maybe maladaptive behaviors or this kind of struggling to kind of move on with day-to-day -day functioning it's where we can look at kind of you know clinical interventions to support people but more often than not when we look at numbness it's a perfectly normal reaction 
to experiencing something so traumatic in terms of a, a collective loss. And I suppose really what it comes down to is how can we support each other? So quite often it's just about checking on each other. How are you feeling today? Like we did at the start, how are you both feeling? When we're, you know, thinking about, think about all the people, as you've mentioned, there on the scene, just checking in going, how are you feeling? Just gives people an opportunity to say whatever they want to say or need to say. But most importantly, it gives them a vehicle to feel heard without even saying anything. So it just recognizes I'm here for you and sharing in that empathic space. So it's about us being able to reach out um, and create a listening space. And then aside from that, and I think what we're really good at doing is trying to provide practical support. So as you mentioned, being on the scene and offering that practical support or with families now, you know, running errands, cooking a dinner, babysitting for an hour, all of these practical things that we can really take for granted on a daily basis that we can do normally. But when we're struggling, we struggle to do those little bits. So it can be really helpful to support each other practically that way. Yeah, I think that's one of the, that's the correct term. One of the most beautiful things to come out of this is the community and how it reacted with each other and for each other. <clears throat> it's obviously it's you don't want to have to go through this as a community, but I feel the way that people, you know, from going to the funeral, say for example, just seeing someone that you hadn't seen in a few weeks or a month or so, and just having that little hug or just that little acknowledgement, and you know just what on touching on what you're saying there about being there for each other something that i've really felt from the community as a whole in the last while and even from outside of the community um you know i'm involved in the ga club here um quite a lot and you know the amount of other clubs that have reached out to support and to sort of offer things and you know offer whatever they can do or um, and even like the, the county board and, you know, the Ulster Council and Croke Park, everything, they're all sort of trying to do what they can, you know, and that's an extended community. Mm. But I suppose from my personal point of view, the first week, especially uh, like you're saying there about that feeling of kind of hopelessness and, you know, it was very hard to do anything, especially for the first week or so. Um, I think once all the funerals were 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 done definitely sort of gave me a um a stepping stone to move into another um direction of the grieving process i think but maybe others aren't the same but i definitely felt a hopelessness in that like what is the point in anything the first week um and maybe if there's someone listening to this and are still feeling that yeah have you any advice on how to sort of take that next step or uh, obviously going to see a counsellor would be um, or seeing a professional would, would be the main piece of advice. But is there any maybe that that you would add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think if, if we're able to talk to professionals, that can be really helpful um, and even, you know, talking to the GP. But I mean, certainly when we're looking at this grieving process and it's only two weeks ago, like not only are we experiencing the loss of a community um, and a loss of individuals, what we're experiencing is the addition of stress, where our bodies and our brains have now become quite stressed. We're also trying to manage the profound removal or subtraction of a person in our lives. So, you know, realistically, we, we end up, I suppose, becoming quite pressured 
our bodies, our minds, um, our emotions. So quite often to try and just, I suppose, navigate the day to day. I'm a big fan of tapping back into that kind of like the biopsychosocial process. So just checking in with how am I feeling right now? What is it that I need? And I think often we're not great at being able to check in with ourselves. We can be really good at checking in with other people, but just being able to check in with ourselves. And I, I suppose with my clients, um, what I always recommend that we do together and then what people practice at home is, let's say like a three minute scan. And quite often people will speak to a three minute body scan. So you literally scan your whole body from your toes to your head. How are you feeling? You feeling tightness anywhere? But I add in, again, think about the biopsychosocial approach. Where are you feeling tightness in your body? What's that feel like? What's it look like? How could you relieve it? But it's also about taking in a deep breath and just checking in. What are my thoughts processes like right now? Are there, am I feeling quite anxious? Am I feeling, as you mentioned, that fear, apprehension walking into the shop? Am I feeling triggered? Am I noticing a different thought pattern? And it's also then checking in with how you're feeling. So Aidan, you kind of mentioned this numbness and kind of just seeing how that kind of changes over time. But we don't really recognize that unless we check in. So quite often, what I always suggest with a grieving process is being able just to check in regularly with ourselves and see what it is that we need. Because then when we know what we need, other people can help us with that. And I suppose quite often when we kind of move into that checking in piece, we then learn to be a bit more patient for ourselves. And we also recognize that, okay, I'm feeling, you know, really low today. What I actually need from that is to be able to get a takeaway, um, not bother cooking with the dinner, have a cup of tea. Um, I'm not really sleeping that well. So quite often when we have experienced grief, we have quite an interrupted sleep. So it's about trying to figure out where can I get my rest at what time and how can I get it? And quite often we look at trying to build in quality sleep. But even for now, it's about trying to get us just as much rest as we can where we can. And that could even be 10 minutes of switching off, kind of just going back into ourselves and checking in with ourselves around that. And then it's literally just about kind of connecting with others and trying to keep that connection alive. Sometimes when we're feeling a lot of these, you know, kind of intense emotions, we can kind of retreat into ourselves. And that's part of a healthy grieving process. But it's just also about trying to keep that hand out with other people where we can and just be able to have it available to us so that we can dip, dip in and dip back out of it again. But most importantly, it's about just checking out where you are regularly. If it's <clears throat> if it's a case of someone who is grieving and doesn't have that self awareness yeah. um, of checking in with themselves, and and again something similar to what Stephen said, if there's someone listening to this and you know and and you're observing someone who maybe was directly involved or has been yeah. affected by it, um. And and maybe they are a little bit of of the deer in the headlights. Um, what what's a gentle way to approach these sort of questions? To and and I'm probably going to specifically say a man here who yeah. who may just because I I remember being I remember being on the scene and I remember look I remember standing side by side with with who I would have said a grown man. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I could just see the disbelief in their eyes. And I was just wondering, like, if you're thinking that, you know, if I'm seeing disbelief in your eyes, like, I, I'm just wondering how you're doing and how you're going to do. Because I, I knew and myself in that moment that I'm going to need to talk about this. But so what, what I'm asking is, 
if there's someone out there who's observing someone that's been affected and they're they're not checking in with themselves how do you approach such a sensitive subject with someone who who may be a deer in the headlights and who may run away when you say some ask that sort of question what's a good way to approach someone again I, and i think it's more about taking it back to basics in terms of what we're really good at which is how are you and leaving it so open that the other person can kind of make their own decision where they want to go with that which could be kind of keeping the shutters down if they want in terms of not wanting to go there with someone or it could be actually you know what no one's asked me that in the last day I really feel like I need to offload this but it's just about being there um and I suppose giving the giving the person the opportunity to share but also just the opportunity to recognize that we're there and by doing that we start building in that kind of awareness checking mechanism with other people organically by just being there asking how are you yeah, I think the last couple of weeks is the first time, first time, I mean, we speak about stuff on this podcast quite a lot and we talk about, I'm not a, the biggest fan of like small talk as you will, but it's probably the first time ever that there was no small talk because it was either, you know, three weeks ago, if you met someone in the shop, you'd be like, oh, how are you? But it's the first time that people would meet each other in the shop or the town or whatever. And, you know, uh, how, how are you doing? They yeah. Yeah. And the answer wasn't, oh, grand, yeah, how are you? You know, it was very much like a, yeah. um, you know, various answers from, oh, it's tough or to, you know, it's the first time that I've experienced that. And I think <clears throat> that's quite a good thing. Um, But I'd also be worried about, just that becoming the sort of small talk, that short answer of, oh, I'm not too good or whatever. I'm worried about the people that might not either answer truthfully yeah, or that might answer by saying, oh, sure, could be worse. I could have lost, you know, a family member, yeah. that type of thing. Um, and even sometimes I've experienced that in the last couple of weeks. Like, you know, it's definitely in terms of like a, a long-term thing is the most sad I've felt for a week or two weeks. And I've stages where it's probably the most I've cried in the last couple of weeks um, for something that's not a, not directly just for me or experience for me, if you know what I mean. But trying to deal with that, I was going somewhere with this question, but um, trying to deal with that in terms of like, uh, coming forward and actually expressing it so that it's not just becoming the norm to say oh i'm not too good you know how do you take it a step further that you actually get help um or like aiden was saying like if you spot someone that says the same response to three or four people you know how how can we truly make that difference to maybe is there any questions not just how are you but maybe something to add to that that might um, help I think and I think that's a really good point um, and quite often it can just be something again feeding into the practical piece because the practical piece is very tangible so you know by asking questions like how are you eating how are you sleeping we can answer those without maybe sharing too much of our vulnerabilities where we can still keep the shutter down but it still gives us an insight into I'm um, maybe not sleeping that good or Aiden actually isn't really eating that well now at the minute maybe it is that we send over 
the chicken stew or something like that. Or, you know, Stephen, I've, I've kind of heard Stephen say now the last few weeks, ah, he's not really sleeping that great, you know, and being able to share some resources with, we'll say, somebody else in the family, for example. Um, and there can be really, really helpful resources available that we can kind of share together without having to have the conversation somebody doesn't want to. Being able to have that information readily available can be really useful. And quite often, our, like our GP will have um, information around bereavement and loss, but also the Irish Hospice Foundation has an awful lot of information around grief, the grief process, supporting children with grief, how to kind of manage going forward. Yeah, and I think that's quite helpful. And just the other thing that just came to mind, I suppose, is that, that you know, I've told myself when I'm experiencing that sadness that, oh, it could be worse, but it wasn't helping me. It was nearly making me, yeah. m- making me worse. And I know that I shouldn't be saying that, but I still say it and it doesn't help me at all. Um, have you any sort of advice on not to stop saying that, but, you know, to catch yourself? I'm sure you've experienced people saying that quite a lot. Yeah, and it comes back to the three C's, catch it, check it and change it. Um, so when we notice something like this, um, and like, to be honest, we have up to 90,000 thoughts a day and up to 80% of them um, are kind of like these negative automatic trains of thinking patterns that we have anyway. Um, and we're oblivious to a lot of them. So it is really important when we notice something like this coming in, particularly if we're talking about the notion of it, even survivor's guilt, uh, you know, feeling a certain way um, in terms of being guilty because I'm alive. Um, and as you've mentioned, Aidan, kind of starting a new life over the last couple of weeks. Um, and I suppose it's about trying to catch that and check it because what we don't want is to brush in our feelings under the carpet. It's, you know, part and parcel of this process to be incredibly sad while also still trying to continue with our day to day or while also recognizing I'm actually really grateful for what I might have. And that's perfectly OK as well. So it comes back to checking in with ourselves. So, again, just seeing what kind of thought patterns or what feelings are coming up, trying to catch it. If you notice the sure I'm grand. No, actually, I'm not grand. I need to change that now. I've ca- I've caught it. I now need to change it. And it's just saying, I'm actually not feeling great, and I need to stop brushing that under the carpet and just owning it, even for thirty seconds. And you'll start habitually doing that more and more. Then, so it's about um, recognizing our own feelings. You, you, you have both led me into this, and the flip side of that coin, Michelle, is like because I've left and, and I'm just going to do it solely on my experience here in the last two weeks I've had some great things happen to me and I've started sort of a new life for the winter months and started a new job and everything's going actually really well for me in my life at the moment which is amazing and that's sort of survivor's guilt that that goes along with it or there's a part of me that feels like um it's hard to accept that that things are going well yeah. and it's like that thing in, that Stephen said I know I shouldn't be saying that to myself um, but I am and I guess I'd imagine there's a lot of other people like I don't expect people to move on from this for a long time but it is part of the process and you know even the likes of having humour and laughter and maybe love in your life or maybe someone's pregnant now or someone's getting engaged now or that's a very double-edged sword as well because you've got this thing on one side this grief and this trauma that people are experiencing 
but you've also got the joy of life as well if you've somehow managed to still survive and have all these these good things so how do how do apart from juggling the the ebbs and flows of the ups of the downs of it how do you juggle the ebbs and flows of the ups of the good times that maybe people still have had in the last two weeks and are maybe feeling should we you know encourage more laughter should we encourage more things that make us feel good and things that that give us meaning and move in that direction or do we stay you know where we are how does that look how does that work I think it becomes very individual. Some people might still be in the, the stage of feeling numb, disbelief, shock, um, anger, sadness. And other people, as I said, might be kind of feeling a little bit more strong, shall we say, as we'll say that the week, you know, as we've moved into the second week or moving now into the third week, we'll say next week, and kind of noticing those, as you said, those snippets of, well, actually, things are really good today or like I mentioned at the start, the rain stopped two hours ago, which is great, you know, being able to have a little bit of daylight. And I suppose it's perfectly natural and normal to have in 24 hours of our day, you know, if we think about one hour being 4%, just saying, well, actually it's 4% for right now could be, I'm in a really dark place. The next hour, I might actually feel a little bit okay. Then I might feel a little bit um dark again or things might feel dark and really what it means is we're going through what I was mentioning earlier this learning process and what we need to do is treat the individual as an individual and I suppose being able to read the room and supporting each other going back to those practical steps or like that if you think well actually I can introduce some laughter or I can share a joke that I heard today or I heard on the news or that somebody had mentioned last week or, you know, it is okay to go for a run and feel great after it. You know, those types of activities start building more, I suppose, hopeful messages for our brain, for our body, for our emotions going forward. And we start building stamina, resilience and strength by doing that, by integrating those kind of happy, peaceful, maybe meaningful activities, whatever they look like in our daily routine. So is it a case of, you know, like what they say in, in the airplane, you know, is it like a case that, to build crease the community again that we start with ourselves first and build yeah. up from there and build the community um or is that sort of a similar sort of help yourself and then help others yeah yeah i mean as the saying goes you can't pour from an empty cup so being able to try and collectively support each other we need to go back and look after ourselves which again comes back to that biopsychosocial how am i feeling physically how am i feeling how's my thinking how how are my emotions how am I, am I, am I integrating uh, with the community? Am I sleeping? Am I eating? And checking in, building ourselves up so that we can help other people. Um, I think these are really practical pieces of advice you've given. Um, and I know from myself the last couple of weeks, um, I managed the under 17 um, Gaelic team. And when we had them back training, you know, felt like it was too early nearly to train but then once it started and the kind of the boys got going and uh, we kind of had a bit of crack and a bit of laughter and um myself and the other manager ended up joining in most of the drills and it was more helpful for us well I'm, i hope it was helpful for the boys too but it was kind of that collectiveness of you know having that hour that 
I don't think it was distracting, but I think it was like a, a help flower where you can just have the crack and have the laugh and not feel guilty about it. Yeah. Which I think is important. Um, is there anything else important? I'm conscious of your time. And um, uh, just to sort of wrap it up, is there anything else that you feel is important to sort of um, look after yourself and thinking about others over the next week, yeah. month, few months? Months and years, you know, really think about the long-term implications. I think it's more, mainly just about try and keep yourself as well as you can on a day-to-day. Um, and that's going to look different for everyone on every different day. So it, for me, it is always going back to checking in, you know, being able at some point to have more information available to to everyone around grief, grief processes. So like that, the Irish Hospice Foundation has a huge amount of information. You know, having checking mechanisms like Insight Timer, like free apps where people can just have something to be able to shift the focus, as you've said, to something else um, and almost guide us through something. And there's also some really helpful books, you know, Man's Search for Meaning, for example, or The Body Keeps the Score, trying to learn how we manage trauma um, and how we manage it within ourselves and manage it as a community. Those types of resources down the line can be really useful for people when they're feeling a little bit more, as we just mentioned earlier, a bit more strong, a bit more resilient, a bit more hopeful. But that takes time. Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Man's Search for Meaning mm. there. Um, as we kind of uh, mentioned it in the last episode of our podcast, um, and that we're going to actually read it over the next few weeks and then discuss it at the end uh, of this season of episodes. So um, it's good to hear from yourself that that's going to be helpful and, and hopefully more people will, will join in reading. It's and a fantastic book to create meaning in such adverse um, experiences. It's fantastic. So happy for you to be reading it. Yeah, and well, we, we had read it before and and obviously Victor Frankl is from Vienna, which is where yeah. I am at the moment. And yeah. so I think we didn't plan it, but we probably couldn't have picked a better book in the grand scheme of things. Um, Michelle, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. I really hope that the people of Creaseland and surrounding areas can can take something from your words. Um, we'll leave the final couple of sentences up to yourself and thank you again for your time so as i as i mentioned earlier thank you for for having me and i suppose bringing me into your experience your shared experience um and kind of hearing a little bit more about what it's been like um increased over the last couple of weeks and i think just you know to echo probably what's been said even on a national level my thoughts are with absolutely everybody increase that and i think it's just about continuing to build hope as what seems to be so apparent over the last couple of weeks so thank you again for for having me